0: I think we've become somewhat preconditioned to get all of our news from specific sources. And I believe it's important that Americans educate themselves on the facts that often, you know, perhaps reading something a little different, a different source, to test your own knowledge and to see perhaps Additional points of view, I'm a big believer in seeking out information, trying to understand the data. It has become uh, perhaps the American way to work real hard and then come home and turn on, if you would a particular you know network and get all of your information from one source. I think there's more information out there, but you know, look, it's hard when you raising kids, trying to pay health insurance, dealing with incredible inflation. All those issues, you're like, you know, I just want to come home and I just don't want to have to work anymore at getting the information. And, you know, look, I remember I grew up with Walter Cronkite at, with CBS, right? Yeah. And I think, as I've heard others say, I think we used to watch the news for information. And I think in a lot of cases, we watch it for validation right now. The oil and gas industry, the driving engine of the world economy, delivering prosperity, innovation, and abundance across the globe. Here are the stories of its key players, directly from the leaders themselves. This is Oil and Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, where real experiences are passed on from the leaders of today to the leaders of tomorrow. Here is your host, Paige Wilson.
1: Welcome back to another episode of Oil & Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, sponsored by CBRE. CBRE is the global leader in real estate operations, providing solutions to the world's largest energy, oil, and gas companies. CBRE supports their clients' facilities, both upstream and downstream, without compromising safety, by delivering strategies that optimize operations, reduce costs, and risk. Unlock the power of your energy, oil, and gas portfolio with CBRE. Learn more at www.cbre.com forward slash EOG. Also, if you're interested in getting your hands on some OGGN stickers, check out the show notes for a 10-second survey and reach out to Audrey Zinn to get those shipped out to you. All right, let's get into this week's guest. I am sitting here today with Scott Angel, Chief Executive Officer and Lead Strategist of Angel Partners, founder of U.S. Energy Workers former and longest-serving Director of the Bureau of Safety and Environmental Enforcement, former Lieutenant Governor of the state of Louisiana, as well as former Secretary of Louisiana Department of Natural Resources. Scott, thank you for joining me today. How are you? Well,
0: I, I'll tell you what, it's so exciting to join you. You know, I'm here in Cajun country and to be able to, to be speaking to the energy capital of the world. <laughs> it's really, really good stuff. And I know you know, there's a lot of Cajuns that have migrated across the Sabine River into the Republic of Texas. We're very, very proud of our relationship <laughs> with Texas, but we still like to stand out as the 18th great state of this Union. So good afternoon, and thank you for having
1: me. <laughs> Absolutely. I was very excited to see that you wanted to come on. So Scott, let's talk about how you actually got started in the industry.
0: Well, you know, you grow up in Louisiana. there's a path that you can take. You know, it's either going to be perhaps uh, maybe engineering, perhaps agriculture, perhaps one of those things. And I had a great opportunity to be exposed to the petroleum land business and the university in Lafayette, the University of that time Southwestern Louisiana under the acronym of USL, which now is known as the University of Louisiana at Lafayette, had a really great uh, program in the petroleum land management area. And I decided to get into that program and got exposed to the industry in that land world. And I think it was just a really phenomenal place to be exposed to the industry. And that kind of uh, led to other opportunities. But at the same time, my dad had had a career in, in government. And in addition to owning a Ford dealership in our small town, my dad served in a variety of positions. So I had a bug. I think I got bit by the bug of public service. And so while I was understanding oil and gas and trying to do the things that I was doing, I always felt the desire and the pull to take some of that information and maybe that knowledge and bring it to the public sector. And I did. And so followed my career and my passion to local elected office and then got into state government and then federal government. So I'm pleased that I've been able to serve at all three of those levels to be an executive at the local level, the state level and the federal level. It's been exciting.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And you and I were talking before we got on here and I mean, you were Lieutenant Governor during like one of the hardest times in the industry after the Macondo incident.
0: Yeah, that was a tough one. That was a tough one, you know, and certainly, you know, we had to rally when, you know, leadership requires that you have to rally when things are down. You know, it's easy to be the champ when things are going well, when things are not going so well is when we really test the character of leadership. And that was a tough one because at the same time, we were mopping up oil. At the same time, we were petitioning the White House to let us do more oil and gas drilling. We felt very strongly that that one event did not, if you would, define the entire industry. i made, you know, Paging was incredible. The governor asked me to be the lead to get the drilling moratorium that the White House instituted to get it lifted. And so how do you get a drilling moratorium lifted when you have no specific experience in that area, right? It's, so you have to rely on your leadership skills. You have to rely on how you marshal resources, how you pull smart people in, and how do you kind of make sure that you understand the highest priorities and work it through it. I went up to DC probably 2021, 20, 22, 25 times with a variety of key people who helped, I believe, tell the story. And I was proud to represent the 18th great state of the union that had a long and distinguished history of oil production in the Gulf of Mexico. And, you know, this was a bad event. There's no doubt it was a bad event. But we were able to get that turned around and we got back to work. And certainly, I think one of the reasons we got it turned around is that oil prices began to start creeping up that summer. And, you know, look, having lived next to the White House now for four years, I will share with you that I think there's somebody gets up in the White House every day to do two things, and it's not to check on China and Russia. It's to check on the price of milk and the price of gas and to let the president know what's going on. And I think as we were coming out of the concerns associated with the technical concerns associated with the Deepwater Horizon event, as prices started to move, I think the White House was very concerned about energy prices being unaffordable. And certainly we kind of went through that again recently. So yeah, it was a tough time, but you know, leadership requires that you find a way to get across the goal line.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. And thank you for doing that. That helped the industry tremendously. A privilege. Yes. Yes. So let's talk about USA energy workers and why you founded that.
0: Yeah, you know, so in my role as a regulator, you're often in meeting and greeting folks who or environmental experts, and energy experts. And they all have really, really fancy titles. And I understand they do important work, but they are all very high, tend to be high-ranking folks. Right. And again, I get that. But I've been intrigued by the success of the American foreign industry. And the foreign industry, to me, does an incredible job. And America has a love affair of people who work outside. We really, really do. And so as I watch farmers. When we try to change the foreign policy in this country, yeah, we might have the leader of XX Food Company or XXY Food Company, but somehow, someway, when we're trying to change foreign policy in this country, we also have some khaki pants. We also have a green tractor. We also have people who wear maybe a straw hat because Americans identify with those folks. And while I certainly understand that we're going to have to have executives at the table, I would say that I always felt that we needed more boots and less suits at the table, if you know what I mean. Yeah, no, I more, yeah. Yeah, more of those steel toe boot wearers who would help to humanize, right? And maybe 30 years ago, we didn't need to do this. But certainly in today's era, when we're talking about traditional energy, we need to understand that our workers need to be elevated and celebrated. You know, Paige, I love the old cliche. I love the whole cliche that if you can read, thank a teacher. Our teachers deserve so much. I like to add to that cliche. If you can read at night in your warm or your cool home, thank a teacher and a USA Energy worker. So my thought process was, as a regulator, I always felt that that part of the industry was missing from the conversation. And I felt if we could perhaps begin to elevate and celebrate those workers for the contributions that they make every day, then America would begin to see these people not as criminals who are trying to destroy the planet, but actually humans who are trying to improve the quality of life for their neighborhoods and their families. So the whole concept is really about elevating and celebrating the steel-toed boot wearers and the hard hat wearers.
1: Very good. Very good. So what does Angel Partners do?
0: Look, your Partners, you know, when you serve for a long time and you study hard, you have knowledge and we're out there as strategic thinkers trying to work through complex issues in the offshore sector. Again, just trying to make sure that we are taking the significant knowledge that we've put together over a lifetime of studying hard, keeping our nose clean and making that available to clients who have strategic solution needs. Okay, so
1: like, what kind of needs? Like, is this as like far as like regulation goes? You know, I don't do
0: a whole. I don't do a whole bunch so much directly with the regulatory side. I'm really more, I would say, advocate. I'm more out there communicating and talking about the really positive things of American energy. You know, I went out here recently and submitted to the United States Trademark Office and received a trademark for a slogan. And that slogan is called Balancing the Three E's. And i like to, for a moment, talk about that because somehow, some way along the way, the red states perhaps are viewed as becoming more concerned about energy, one of those E's called energy. The blue states maybe perhaps got viewed as being more concerned about one of those E's called the environment. And I think there's a third E in the middle, and it's not red and it's not blue, it's bright purple, and it's called the economy. And I believe that those three E's are like the three legs of a bar stool. Certainly from Louisiana, got a lot of experience with a bar stool. <laughs> and having said that, I believe that, you know, when one of those legs of a bar stool gets out of whack, we know what happens, right? And so I believe that balancing the three E's is the absolute best path forward for American energy policy. And I believe that. The USA Energy Worker, because of their know-how, their dedication, and the regulatory environment that we do have in this country, allows us to focus on achieving that goal of balancing the three E's. And Paige, I think it's important, I think it's very important to understand that we've had six recessions, 1973 to 2019. And every one of those recessions have been preceded by a spike in energy prices, as goes our access to affordable, not cheap, but as goes our access to affordable energy, so goes the economic performance of this country. We sell more homes, we build and sell more cars, we have a more robust retail economy, a more robust travel and entertainment economy. When we have affordable energy, it's not debatable. We marital climate control homes and we often live in places we do not work And that's one of the great advantages of the interstate, the Eisenhower interstate system. So I believe that, you know, we have to have energy to be a world power. And I get very concerned when we're talking about an energy transition. I think we'd like to call it more of an energy addition.
1: Yes. Right? Not not so
0: much a transition, but more of an addition. There's room in the toolbox to put another energy source, I think. I was reading here recently that the distinguished president, CEO of BP, said that, you know, Trying to make the transition, if you would, before the next source is ready only serves to undermine the effort. Because if we're constricting supply without reducing demand, then inevitably will lead to price spikes. And price spikes, again, lead to less support for the effort. So I fundamentally believe that American energy and American energy workers. What we need to focus on rather than raising interest rates, rather than increasing interest rates, I think we could get inflation under control with a lot less pain if we increased American production rather than increasing American interest rates. So again, I just believe that energy is important and the facts are pretty clear. You know, even where I come from at Brobridge High, you know, on a graduate, six times from 1973 to 2019, you've had six recessions. When energy prices spike, it's probably a pretty good trend that you can count on is going to happen if those set of circumstances present themselves again.
1: Yeah, no, you'd think people would figure that out. I mean, you obviously get it, but yeah, you know. Yeah,
0: it it was unfortunate. Yeah, you know, Paige, what's unfortunate in all this is that, look, I realize that elections have consequences, but in the name of the environment, this is a very, very important, I think, fact that gets missed. In the name of the environment, This administration decided to first pause and then cancel Gulf of Mexico lease sales. Okay. Now, they did that in the name of the environment. Now, it's important to understand that they did that, I guess, in January of 2021. And a little-known report that was produced under the Obama-Biden administration by the Department of Interior concluded the following, and I'm quoting United States greenhouse gas emissions would be higher if we were to have no lease sales. Emissions from substitutions are higher due to exploration, development, production, and transporting of oil from international sources being more carbon intensive. Now, stop for a second. In the name of the environment, we paused and canceled lease sales in the Gulf of Mexico, yet... A report that was produced, a federal report, public record, produced by the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management in November 2016 under the Obama-Biden administration, concluded that if we would not have the lease sales, we would have worse greenhouse gas emissions as a result of having to backfill the need with sources, often foreign sources, often at higher carbon intensity. Yet, that's exactly what we did, because as you recall, in probably around August, October of 2021... As the price started moving north, the president basically went to OPEC and said, I need y'all to give us more.
1: Oh, yeah. Gave him a big old dab and everything.
0: Yeah. And then OPEC turned around and you know, <laughs> gave the middle <laughs> finger to America, right? And yeah. so it's for us on the Bayou, it's almost, we kind of think that is that, you know, we have to question, is there something nefarious going on here? If And I'm not being political. I'm just being factual. I don't want to be political. I just want to present the facts. The facts are that the Obama-Biden administration, in a federal document, concluded that if we were not to have lease sales, it doesn't say the price would go up. It doesn't say that. It says that we would have higher greenhouse gas emissions. And in the name of the environment, that's why we canceled the lease sales. But yet this report that was produced before that warned you shouldn't do it. Yet we did it anyway as a country and then went to OPEC to ask them to give us more And quite frankly, you know, we've heard a lot of things about global warming. We never heard anything about USA warming. So why would we say no to production here to go get that same supply somewhere else and, you know, lose jobs here, vilify American producers? So there's something at play that's really, you know, and again, don't take my words for it. The Wall Street Journal in, I think, in October of 2021 opined that the way to reduce gas prices And I'm quoting on something I see here from the Wall Street Journal on Friday, October 22nd, 2021. The way to reduce gas prices is to produce more oil to increase the supply. Mr. Biden wouldn't have to plead with OPEC to produce more if you were not working so hard to limit U.S. oil production. So, again, that's not my words. That's the words of others, but certainly applicable in this case.
1: Yeah, and and something that really concerns me is the level of the SPR and how they are just like, oh, well, you know, let's sell some oil to China. They're using our reserves. Like, if something happens, we're screwed.
0: Yeah, you know, and again, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve was not meant to buffer market shocks on prices. Right. It's really it's really more meant for, you know, the emergency supply, for the development of our country and on and so forth. And so but again, you know, if you stop and think for a little bit about the vilification, the vilification that's gone on of the domestic oil and gas industry, which is unwarranted, wholly unwarranted, because again, the metrics are very clear. I would tell you the Gulf of Mexico has the second lowest carbon intensity production in the world.
1: I believe that, yeah.
0: Among the lowest volume of flared invented gas, methane, to produce gas ratio. So, you know, the whole talk right now, which is becoming, I think, something that you're going to start reading more and more about, is as we embrace the opportunity to bring EVs and battery technology. I'm all of the above. I think we ought to be about all of the above. That's fine. But it takes rare earth minerals to do the kind of battery construction that we need to be able to do. And China has an absolute lock on the rare earth minerals of this planet. An absolute lock. So what I would say if we were, you know, if it were Wilson and Angel LLC here, and we're trying to figure this out, before we unplugged our current source, we'd start looking for some reliability on our future source. And if the future source is EV and a battery technology, and that's all coming from rare earth minerals that our biggest adversary has a lock on. Yeah. We need to go back to the locker room.
1: Yeah. I agree with that. And if I'm not mistaken, wasn't there A mining explosion in North Carolina?
0: I didn't see that, but certainly, you know, there's going to be some, you know, there's always consequences for activity, and that would be unfortunate. And of course, you know, the oil and gas industry is not immune. The chemical manufacturing industry, the airline industry is not immune. None of us are immune from, you know, a bad day, right? But a bad day doesn't make a bad life. In this particular situation, my concern is really more about the fact that if we make this transition without a plan and a transition does presuppose that there's a plan. And if we don't have a plan and understand that we got to reach certain milestones and we got a long term supply of rare earth minerals that are needed for battery technology or battery construction, I mean, again, that's just kind of really, really odd to me. And so we got to figure that out. And you know, what I'm doing at USA Energy Workers is just trying to make those kind of statements and those observations. And when we take a look at the price, you know, Paige, we take a look at the price, I'm very concerned. I mean, Americans are very concerned. The number one issue that Americans are concerned are now inflation. I mean, it's it just destroying. And again, you know, we've seen, I think, from about 2017, just kind of going to my memory from about 2017 to 2022, a pretty significant increase in crude oil prices. But we've had a 550% increase in food inflation from 2017 to 2022. So again, about an 86% spike in energy prices from crude oil prices. Crude oil prices spiked about 86% from 2017 to 2022. And during that same period, overall inflation was up 281%. And food inflation exploded to 550%. When you take a look at the base, you add where we were in 2022. So, and then housing sales were down 5%. Vehicle sales are down 20%. It's just, it's unfortunate. You know, you got me and you're like, wow, gosh, you know, this guy must have had seven cups of coffee. I probably had 10 <laughs> today. I probably had 10, so I apologize. But one No, of the you're excited
1: too, and you're passionate about it, and I appreciate that because there, yeah, there, you, know, you people, have a lot look, of information that I don't think people truly are actually knowledgeable of.
0: Yeah, look, I think at the end of the day, people are kind of, you know, you either in one camp or the other. I just think that's so silly to be in one camp yeah. or the other. I think you've got to educate yourself, and clearly we're into an energy addition. I get that. I mean, it makes sense for me. I mean, you know, Diane and I have five children. None of our children have a home telephone line they made the transition to wireless technology, right? It's okay. It's okay. The world did not fall apart, whatever. And as we make the transitions from energy or additions here, we just need to be smart enough to know that we can't crush our economy doing it. And, you know, you talk to folks and you ask them, you know, are you willing to pay an exorbitant amount of energy and not have a job? Well, no, that's not a solution. That's an insult. And asking OPEC to give us production while we're vilifying American producers. Again, is not a solution. It's an insult. It's an insult first to the USA energy worker. But let me tell you what it's evolved to. It was an insult first to the USA energy worker to ask OPEC to do what we were not willing to do here. But it has become now an insult to the USA energy consumer who's getting hammered by inflation.
1: Yeah, I'm not going to get into that because I'm just going to get angry and then we're going to get into politics. So (laughs) I'm just going to hush. But let's get into leadership, actually. Scott, what is leadership to you? I mean, you've had a lot of leadership roles.
0: It's so, you know, kind of corny or whatever. It means so many different things. I don't know. I guess I like the old saying, leadership is doing the right thing when nobody's looking. Ah, integrity. Yeah. Yeah. There's so many characteristics to be a great leader. I would like to say that me, leadership, I define leadership, had this on my wall in my office in D.C., I will be where preparation intersects with confidence and integrity and accountability. To me, if you're willing to be held accountable, you know, if you lead by example, you prepare. It takes a lot of time to prepare. Nobody that's great ever gets anything done just because they decided that morning to go do it. To do great things, you got to work and you got to prepare. Preparation, competence, accountability, and integrity, to me, are the characteristics that kind of combine for great leaders. Without integrity, I just don't know how you get there.
1: Yeah, no, I, I, yeah, very stand-up thing to say. What is an example of a difficult experience you've had as a leader, aside from the whole Macondo
0: Yeah, you know, McConnell was difficult. Look, Hurricane Katrina, being the Secretary of Natural Resources in 2005 and and having to deal with the worst storm that had ever made, landfall, and, you know, knowing that our state got absolutely hammered by landfall here and certain folks who perhaps didn't have resources struggled to get help. And so it kind of played out, you know, on the national scene. In an ugly way, that was mis, you know, unfortunate. And you know, we'd like to think in Louisiana again that the response to Hurricane Katrina doesn't define us. We believe that you know we make significant contributions to this country. Certainly, the energy space is one of those. So you know, just working through the grind of Katrina, trying to make sure that because at that point in time, you know, when you're secretary of a department, you serve as a member of the unified command, and it's no longer staying specifically in your lane, it's all hands on deck and we've got to do what we've got to do to help people, right? People are suffering, need to help. So that was a big challenge and I would say probably would have been the toughest, difficult, most difficult time. And you know, when you're doing that, your family, you know, your family's also going through issues because typically, you know, they're gonna get hammered by that same weather event, right? And you know, you're trying to be a dad, you're trying to be a husband, you're trying to be a provider to your family, but at the same time, you having to be to serve the greater good there, so those things get challenging, but you find a way to balance them. And I've been very fortunate to have a very supportive family. Yeah, because you were probably
1: in Baton Rouge then, huh?
0: Yeah, well, I was living in the KDN in the Lafayette area and commuting there. But you know, when you're in Baton Rouge and you get a call from your family, it's not just rushing back over, you know, 50, 60 miles to take care of it. So you have to have an extended network of family and friends who can, you know, maybe help out with. One of the kids who have any issue at school, maybe there's a you know we got a battery that needs to be jumped. Maybe the tallest leaking today and Scott's not available. All <laughs> the all the fabulous and glorious romantic things that a husband does. All right, just you gotta kind of find a way to get somebody to do those things. But again, Diane has been very supportive of me in that effort to serve. So it's been a really good program.
1: Good, good. So what has been the most rewarding thing in your career? with regards to leadership?
0: Yeah. So, you know, one of the things I looked at when I became secretary of natural resources is uh, several governors of both parties from different areas of the state had all made public statements that if we ever got federal revenue sharing from the federal government associated with offshore oil and gas, that we would put that money towards coastal restoration. Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, they were all very, very genuine with those comments and those leadership statements. I, however, began to look very closely and in spite of the fact that those statements were very genuine, I noticed that there was nothing that required that if we in fact got that money, that we would actually be required to spend it on that particular effort, right? Mm. And I also know, given my experience being one of nine children and also serving in the public sector, that when you put a little bit of, when there's no feed in the trough, you can say a lot of things. But when they got a bunch of feed in the trough, people start changing their mind about what they really want to do with their money. So I had a concept and I brought it forth to the leadership of the state and said, you know, what we really need is a constitutional amendment need a constitutional amendment to forever lock up this money that we're going to spend it on coastal restoration. And of course, you know, you got 64 parishes in our state and there's 19 of the parishes in the coastal zone. And why would the other parishes say, well, yeah, that's a good thing for us to do, you know, I mean, when they have other needs, right? And we brought forth the, we brought forth the constitutional amendment. And actually, before we went to the vote of the people, it takes a two-thirds vote to get it through both the House and the Senate. And then it has to go in on the ballot box and be voted on by the people. But before we actually so we passed the constitutional amendment in the legislative session, and before we could actually go to the vote of the people, we experienced Hurricane Katrina. And so we were there saying, wow, we're gonna have a lot of, we gonna have a lot, a lot of levees, levy repair work that we need to do. So I kind of coined the phrase that, you know, look, the wetlands protect the levees and the levees protect protect the people. And so what we need we need to do is treat this as one system. So we went back into the legislature in a special session. We tweaked the language and we made, if we ever received any money from federal revenue sharing, from oil and gas, we would make it for the specific purpose of coastal restoration and levy protection. And that was voted on and passed remarkably by the voters in this state from all areas. And we have since, if you would, created that log box. And we have been able to receive a pretty substantial amount of revenue into that lockbox. And we don't have to worry about some unscrupulous leader saying, yeah, but I really need a library or I need a sidewalk or I need this. All good things, all very, very good things, but not what we really had said we wanted to do with it. So I'm very proud of that accomplishment because it took a lot of foresight, took a lot of vision, took a lot of work, took a lot of convincing had to go back and tweak it even after the storm. But we're here, there, and Louisiana is a better place for it.
1: Yeah, and I don't think people understand the coast of Louisiana and how it's slowly
0: going away. Yeah, and it's how- a working coast. You know, it's a working coast. It's Look, I do like the rest of Louisianians. I'm often in the summertime in, in the great, you know, Orange Beach or Alabama or somewhere in Florida. You know, those are not so much the same kind of coast that we have because of the influence of the river here. You know, we have a different kind of coast here. It's a working coast. It's an asset. It's an awesome asset for America, right? But we've had some challenges with it, but we've recognized those challenges, put together a very, very extensive master plan, and now are working through the master plan. And it's not going to be overnight, but we will make a difference. Oh,
1: come on. You don't want to go to Holly Beach?
0: (laughs) Well, you know, what do they say? The paradox. What is it? The Cajun Riviera. The Cajun (laughs) Riviera. Yeah. Yeah. I love Holly Beach. I love Holly Beach. Been there with my family, good old Cameron Parish there. Again, Cameron Parish, another great place, right, mm-hmm. that, that got hammered by Hurricane Rita and just came back and, you know, doing amazing things, helping to fuel and feed, feed America. So, look, one of the things that we believe, as we talked a little bit earlier in the show about, you know, on the strength of our farmers, we watched our farmers do amazing things. If you kind of take a look at what's happening with regards to Ukraine and Europe, you know, the European Union has said they no longer want to get gas from Russia. They don't want natural gas from Russia. Forty percent of Europe's gas, heretofore before the Ukraine invasion, came from Russia. So when you get together and you say, OK, this 40 percent, we don't ever want to do business with Russia again. Well, you've got to get it from somewhere else. The place to get it, we believe, is that we in America are absolutely loaded. We load it with natural gas. Yes. And we have an opportunity to not only feed the world as we do with our farmers on the strength of our farmers, but in the strength of our USA Energy Workers, we believe we have opportunity to fuel the world through LNG exports. And Cameron Parish is one of those great places. Plaxman Parish, another great place where that activity is going on. So yeah, a lot of great things. And we believe USA Energy Workers can help make the planet safer and healthier. All at the same time. and you know when we export grain, we export more than a meal. We export freedoms, we export friendships and we build alliances to make the world a more secure place. LNG exports have an opportunity to do it. so I believe through the drill bit, we can you know find the energy here to help supplant that Russian supply to Ukraine, make Europe a lot safer, a lot friendlier, a lot more stable, and that's better for our children for sure.
1: Yeah. And if I'm not mistaken, wasn't it the Obama administration that approved
0: export of gas? So what the Obama administration did, I think it was in 2012, they actually released, I mean, lowered the restrictions on exporting of oil. So okay. after that was a specific law that they did to export oil.
1: So, Scott, if you had one piece of advice to give our audience, what would that be?
0: I think we've become somewhat preconditioned to get all of our news from specific sources. And I believe it's important that Americans educate themselves on the facts that often, you know, perhaps reading something a little different, a different source, to test your own knowledge and to see perhaps... Additional points of view, I'm a big believer in seeking out information, trying to understand the data. It has become uh, perhaps the American way to work real hard and then come home and turn on, if you would, a particular you know network and get all of your information from one source. I think there's more information out there, but you know, look. It's hard when you're raising kids, trying to pay health insurance, dealing with incredible inflation, all those issues. You're like, you know, I just want to come home and I just don't want to have to work anymore at getting the information. And, you know, look, I remember I grew up with Walter Cronkite with CBS, right? Yeah. And I think, as I've heard others say, I think we used to watch the news for information. And I think in a lot of cases, we watch it for validation right now. Yeah. It's really sad. I think the whole podcast industry really I think is amazing and of course I'm just getting kind of turned on to it, but I think it's one of those things given how much time Americans spend, if you would, in, you know, traffic or in commuting and in other things that they do from, you know, other private moments of exercise, running, working out, doing other things, being at the ballpark, watching kids play, whatever, being able to get to that whole podcast kind of concept and having all of these informed conversations where people can get, you know, several of them and then make their own minds up and their own conclusions and be informed. Look, at the end of the day, democracy requires that we have informed voters. The voters need to listen and learn.
1: Right. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I think that's why I believe in so much what our company does is we try to, you know, not be necessarily biased, but go,
0: here are the facts. Yeah. This is this it's is bigger actual... than your zip code. Yeah. You know, Paige? We all do things for our families. We do things for our own business. But I would share with you what you guys are doing. It's much bigger than your own zip code. Yeah, yeah. You ought to have a sense of satisfaction about that because you, know, you all have, have a way of being able to accumulate and then distribute and in very powerful ways. I think it's fabulous. I'm a big fan.
1: Thank you. I appreciate that, especially coming from you. <laughs> well, you're very, very kind. So yeah, what's wild about this job is the amount of pressure on your shoulders to make sure that you are giving the right information to people. Because I, you know, and don't get me wrong, we make mistakes and stuff, but we'll own it
0: up. We'll own up to it for sure. Well, you know, it'd be easy just to go out there and rant, right? And not be connected to the facts. Right.
1: Yeah. Because I'm not a journalist.
0: (laughs) I want to be a voice that brings thoughtfulness, and folks can understand. Because look, at the end, I don't believe people by and large fundamentally understand the climate advantages. That's a phrase, quite frankly, that few people have ever heard. Climate advantage energy production. What does that mean, that phrase? Climate advantage energy production. Look, the president said it himself in the State of Union address. He said, we are going to need oil, for the next decade and beyond that's his words not mine
1: yeah but Scott we're gonna run out in five years remember well well,
0: well <laughs> the point is if we're gonna need it and again I'm not saying that but he is if I agree that we need it but I was glad to hear you know from his lips and having said that if we're gonna need it why wouldn't we get it from the most climate advantage regions on the planet I mean yeah. it seems so obvious to me right And so I've kind of dedicated a great part of what I do to, again, educate, let folks know. And I want to celebrate, look, the USA energy workers, folks who do this kind of work, and I'm talking about all energy workers. I'm not talking about just oil and gas workers, but all energy workers do amazing work to make sure that we have cool homes and warm homes and can read at night and do the things that we do. Because again, I don't know too many people that are going back to chopping wood. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly my point. Yeah. The Eisenhower interstate system has allowed us, again, to have access to great payroll jobs without having to live in the particular big city, right? You can have a rural place and you can drive into town if you would, right?
1: Yeah. And that's like, you know, most of Texas and Louisiana. That's it. So, I mean, you have to have a vehicle
0: in most cases. That's right. So, yeah. So do you have a book that has influenced you? You know, it's amazing that you'd ask that question. I'm more just kind of a history guy. I'm pretty nerdy when it comes to that kind of stuff. I was really impressed, and you'll find this unusual, with a book that was written by Nick Saban, the head coach of the Alabama Crimson Tide, former head coach of the LSU Tigers. Because the reason I really loved that it, it was about leadership and it's about accountability and it's about doing the hard things. Uh, Coach Saban is a very process-oriented person. And to have a process, you got to have discipline. And discipline is commitment and consistency. So I really, 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 and I'm, I'm sure you listeners would find that to be an unusual, but I really enjoyed that book. And now the book that I'm currently reading right now is a book that was authored by my former boss, the former Secretary of Interior, David Bernhardt, calling You Report to Me. And a really amazing book that is about leadership and is about having preparation and integrity and doing the things that when you become a government leader, know that you will run out of time before you run out of good ideas. So don't waste a moment. Know what it is that your leader wants to accomplish and go get those things done because that's what it is that elections and democracy are about, right? Is that Who's a leader, and the leader has a right to say, This is the direction we go on. And the book called You Report to Me it was just a fabulous book. I recommend it to anybody who is going into government. And I tell you what, just leaders who are trying to deal with government would do well to take a look at that book. Very good. Very good. What's your most used business tool? So, again, you know, I like to be in a lot of different places. I'm a multitasker. When we talk about a business tool, I will share with you that. I don't know if this is responsive to the question when you speak about tools, but I'm going to be very basic here and tell you that the iPhone has radically changed the ability of a person like me to be in five different places, joining five different conference calls and doing, you know, processing documents. I realize that's a simple answer. But if there would be one thing that you would ask me that I can't live without, because I'm a communicator. It is that tool. I look, you know, I, I realized the question may not have been tailored around an answer about a piece of hardware when you talk about a tool, but that to me, because scheduling, I'm a crazy man. When it comes to scheduling, everything has to be in my schedule. Yep. And for, you to, for you to do a lot of different things in this world, you have to be organized and everything goes on my schedule, including, you know, picking up milk at the grocery store. That's who I am. And so having that, those electronic capabilities, the whole, you know, computer interface and everything, just not that I'm very good at it, but (laughs) multitaskers multitaskers have to have something that helps, I think, elevate them and allow them to be exponentially, it's a force multiplier from a timing standpoint. So again, I apologize if that wasn't responsive to your question, but it's a really sincere answer.
1: It's how you interpret it and that's all that matters. I'm the same way. If it's not in my calendar, it's not happening. So exactly you better right. send me an invite or I'm not doing it.
0: Right. But to the contrary,
1: if it's on my calendar, it's happening. Right. Yes.
0: Exactly. No. So Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So throughout your entire career and all the different roles you've had, what has been your most important lesson learned?
0: I would, you know, venture to say that change is hard. Change is hard, whether we're talking about the church, whether we're talking about the Boy Scouts, we're talking about the local homeowners association, we're talking about this big, bad thing called government. Change is hard. And when you have clarity of what it is that you're trying to accomplish and you devise a plan, a set of tactics that you believe will help you achieve your goal. Change requires incredible commitment and follow-up. And the lesson I, I think, have come to understand in probably the last 10 years of my career is when you lead, you have the duty and the responsibility to follow up. And if you're going to wear people out by following them up, but you're getting the change that you set out to do, then you have to follow up. You must follow up. The American people, if you're working for the government, expect you to do it. Change is hard. It takes an incredible amount of motivation to get people to make change. It takes an incredible amount of follow up. And it can wear wear you out. It just wears you out that, well, maybe we'll just give up on that one. And look, people know that change is hard. So sometimes they wait you out and try to wear you out. But the biggest lesson would be that change is hard and you just have to find a way to make sure that you don't give up before you achieve what it is that you're trying to change.
1: Very good. Yeah. No, I think everyone struggles with that. But the kicker is change is constant. So it's kind of like embrace the suck, you
0: know? Yeah. And I guess when I say, you know, change is hard, I'm talking about we have to, I have experience in writing regulatory rules right rules and writing legislation and you know trying to get look it's hard to get people to agree that motherhood and apple pie is really good stuff right i had an incredible mom my mom you know like i said earlier i'm one of nine kids my mom is incredible to think that you know and i have a high high appreciation of motherhood i have five children three daughters i have six granddaughters and i have five sisters and i have 23 female first cousins So I got the software program, I understand, understand, (laughs) right? And so I believe in it and get it as great as motherhood is. In America, we'd have a hard time sometimes agreeing. And so change is so difficult, even on the obvious things, you just can't give up. Right, right. And I haven't always been successful, you know, Paige, you know, I I got my share of failure. So I haven't always been successful, but that's the lesson I would share.
1: Okay. All right. I had no idea that
0: you had failures. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I was an unsuccessful candidate for governor in 2015 and ran really hard and had a really, you know, good shot at it, but got squeezed out and, you know, those things happen. But look, at the end, the opportunity to serve is full of a privilege. You have to feel when you you have an opportunity to get one of these positions that you got to be all in, you got to do it with integrity and you got to be all in all the time. And when you get rejected, You can't take it personal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. -hmm. It's hurtful. You know, it's a public rejection. You know, tomorrow if someone goes to apply for a job and doesn't get it, really, somebody really doesn't know about that even went to apply for that job, right? Yeah, yeah. But when you're candid for public office, it's a public rejection. It's a public rejection. And so you have to be willing to understand that that's the risk. And if you have a servant's heart, you offer yourself. And if not, you still want to do great things for people in other ways. And again, I've been fortunate to be able to do that and just keep on keeping on looking for the next opportunity to add value to America. Yeah,
1: I understand that failure very, very much so. My ex-husband ran a few times and yeah, I definitely understand you can't take that personally and it's hard to
0: separate your emotions from it. Sure. I mean, it's, yeah, you know, and I was very fortunate, probably got elected like maybe, you know seven consecutive times, maybe in local service and whatever, and maybe five or seven. I'm not sure what the number was. But, you know, then you go for the big ring and, you don't make it and it is what it is. And but again, it's not an end all be all. You continue to find ways. And, you know, look, the way it worked for me, I was fortunate to be able to have served well and caught the eye of folks at the federal level that said, you know, here's a guy who was the lieutenant governor during the Macondo event here's a guy that understands offshore. 98% of the offshore production we have in this country is in the Gulf of Mexico. We got 1% in the Pacific and 1% in the Arctic. So maybe this guy might know a little bit and maybe we'll give it a shot. And it worked out well. And the Government Accountability Office issued a report in, I think it was March of 2021, taking federal oversight of federal offshore oil and gas regulations off of the watch list, if you would, off the high-risk list. That didn't happen because... That didn't happen because we took the responsibilities lightly. It happens because we work really hard. And again, safety, I happen to believe that safe operations and environmentally sustainable operations and robust production can be accomplished all at the same time. We're not an either or country. We're not an either or people. I believe it's an and equation, not an or equation. And we proved it in 2019. In 2019, we had the highest offshore oil production in the history of the country and at the same time produced the safest incident rate in the history of offshore and at the same time had the lowest volume of oil spilled in the gulf of mexico so again it's not an either or we cannot be a country that says you know like for instance i kind of compare it to the airline industry it's okay for the airline industry to have a phrase that says we're going to try to get you there safely. And if we can, maybe even a little bit ahead of schedule. We like that as consumers, right? <laughs> we like that. We're going to get you there safely. And we might, you know, you hear the pilot sometimes that, yeah, we're about to do this. It's not taking a shortcut. It's just using technology, right? But, you know, I often get a little concerned because when I hear the oil and gas industry say, you know, we're going to try to do this on budget and within time, well, if, we have good luck and we do it a little bit less than the time that we were allotted. We lose the benefit of doubt. People say, oh, no, y'all cutting corners, you're cutting corners, you're cutting That's not true. That's not true. Well, has it been true on an occasion? Has a pilot made a mistake? Yeah, on occasion. But again, that shouldn't find us, right? We can be safe. We can be environmentally sustainable. And we can have robust production. We are not an either or country. We can do it all and have it all.
1: Right. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. How is your role now important to the future of our industry?
0: So my role now, again, is an advocate, common sense guy, regular guy, you know, sitting down talking to you right now in steel-toed boots myself. Look, I believe that the facts are clear, that in the aftermath of World War II, affordable energy has helped build this great country and this great economy. The Eisenhower interstate system connects us in ways that are incredible, all fueled until recently, all fueled by domestic American energy, oil and gas. I fundamentally believe that in the role that I have now, as I continue to advocate and educate folks on the real facts of the industry, that while we're getting into this energy addition, looking at American energy as the solution, you know, what happens in the Permian Basin is really, really great stuff. That's amazing. You know, what, somebody asked me what goes on the Permian Basin. I said that's nation building. That's nation building going on over there. I mean it's incredible what's happening over there. And I just, you know, I would say that in my role as I might help is continue to bring those facts out, continue to let folks know that the carbon intensity of Gulf of Mexico production is the second lowest on the planet. Let people know that we only flare invent about 1.25% of the produced gas in the Gulf of Mexico. That we have had safe and environmentally sustainable operations going on at the same time as robust production, and again elevating and celebrating the USA energy worker as part of the solution, not part of the problem. I think it's abundantly clear, at least in the area that I'm from, and I suspect this is true across the nation, that USA energy workers enjoy a walk in the park, a day at the beach, afternoon on the lake, and a sunrise and a sunset as much as any other Americans do. They enjoy clean water and clean air as much as any other Americans do. They enjoy green grass as much as any other Americans do. And I think they've been vilified unnecessarily. I think our economy has suffered as a result of it. And quite frankly, I think our planet has suffered because as we've kind of vilified American producers asking OPEC to give us more when their metri- their environmental metrics are worse, just doesn't make a whole bunch of sense. And so I'm gonna to continue to be a advocate for the USA Energy Worker. And make sure that their voice is heard from a guy who's maybe sat in a few chairs that others haven't had the privilege of sitting in.
1: Yeah, very great answer. So, with that, what are your thoughts about telling someone that's not in the industry, that doesn't know a lot about the industry, that doesn't understand, you know, the basics of it?
0: What would you tell that person? It kind of goes back to what I said earlier. I, I always, first of all, let's get the facts right. Let's get the facts, and I think we have to fundamentally agree that we're not going to totally collapse our economy to make a transition to unaffordable energy. And someone who is willing to collapse our economy to make that transition is not someone that I would spend a whole bunch of time trying to convince. There's nothing I could do there. I believe kids in college, once they get a degree, they want a job. I believe kids who are coming out of high school want a job. I believe kids in the younger generation, I think they want a home. I think they want to travel. I think they need a job to be able to do that. And to have a job, we have to have a robust economy. And to have a robust economy, we have to have affordable energy. Don't take my words for it. Take it from the president of the United States who said, we need oil again for the next decade and beyond. So why not get it where it's the most climate advantage, which is here in America. Let's continue to have these conversations about what we might do To conserve, let's have these conversations about what we do to transition. Let's have all these conversations about what we might do for addition. You can sign me up. I want to go to those meetings. I want to listen. I want to learn as well. But while we listening and learning, it makes no sense to totally collapse our economy in Europe. Look, Europe. We just all we got to do is look across. Europe has recently gone through this, so you know Europe tends to be the leader in that area about the green stuff and went very very hard left on the green stuff oh yeah and, and it's had to now kind of start pulling back and having to do things that actually in worse position than they were before he made some of those changes because it wasn't well thought out it yep. wasn't planned i and, agree with that and look one of the things that you know while we were pausing and canceling lease sales in offshore america the uk who had the united kingdom had already done some of that well they kind of reverse course and had a massive hauling gas lease sale there because they realized that a transition or an addition has a phase that you have to go through. And we'll grind through this and we'll get it right. But I'll just want to be a voice of reason. And I would continue to tell people that if we got to have it, we might as well get it where it's the most climate advantage. And that's here in the USA. Yeah. Yeah, exactly.
1: Okay. So do you have a favorite podcast, Scott?
0: Yeah. You know, i tell you what, just getting introduced into this podcast, I'm absolutely adoring the, the whole USA, all the guys network deal because y'all doing such a great job. And just, I think, exposing me in a lot of cases to things that I'm learning as well. Right. So, yeah, you know, nobody knows it all. And I'll probably have access to a lot of data and folks would say, well, he sounds like he knows what he's talking about. I can't understand his accent but it sounds like he knows what he's talking about. I would say that, you know, what you guys are doing is really, really impressive and you in particular. So I'm excited about that. You can count on me to be a, you know, consistent listener there as I have in the past. We'll just take that knowledge and and roll it all up and try at the end of the day to to make a difference, right? That's fantastic. Thank you so much for the kind words. A little special shout out to those LSU Tigers for having, uh, <laughs> having gone to Omaha and won that national championship there. The Tigerland was very, very excited here in Louisiana, and so they should be. So again, we got a lot of positive things going on, and we just wanted to say a special shout out: Go Tigers!
1: Yeah, go Tigers! There's a lot of Jello shots that were, were <laughs>
0: taken in. I did see that. I did see. That. <laughs> I did see that. You know, that's what you call when somebody was kind of sharing that whole Jello shot thing with me. I was like, it kind of came important to some fans. It's like, you know, at this point, I'm not sure. Which more important, do we win the jell Shot Contest or do <laughs> And we won both. That's fantastic.
1: That's fantastic. All right. Well, Scott, thank you so much for joining me. If people want to reach out to you and or get to know more about your companies, how might they go about doing so?
0: Yeah. So thank you. So in the role that I'm visiting with you today, you know, look, it's about USA Energy Workers. I would say visit us at USAEnergyWorkers.com. You'll see a nonpartisan approach there, your fact-based approach. We've got a really non-partisan petition on that website, it takes 30 seconds for folks to sign the non-partisan petition. Just again, recognizing that we need to balance those three E's of energy, environment and economy that we need to, while we are looking at energy additions, we need to also look at the traditional sources of energy. We need to elevate and celebrate our energy workers. I would encourage folks to do it. It's non-political, fact-based, just trying to make sure that folks understand that balancing those three E's is the path to making certain that we can have the energy we need, have the national security we need, and at the same time, make the planet a little bit healthier. Very good. Very good. Much.
1: All right. Well, that concludes this episode. So just remember, it's up to you to open the next door.
0: Tune in next week for another intriguing episode of Oil & Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasindustryleaders.com.